Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the South Central Podcast. I am your host, Ron Austin, and on today's episode, we are flying high. Why? Because today we are joined by a very special guest. Having visited over 60 countries, including Tanzania, Zambia, Australia, Nepal, she's a female VIP line pilot, meaning she flies some of the most important people on the face of this earth. She's been swimming in between tectonic plates, and she is now documenting her trek through the Nepal Himalayas to the Everest Base Camp. Joining us today is Captain Safia Hussein. Welcome and thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Ron. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. All right. So my first question for you really is having to pack up your whole life into one suitcase and move to the Middle East for a job opportunity. How was that experience? Because it sounds scary. Well, it was both um, intimidating and it was also really exciting. I, I was travel starved at that time. And... Even though I was going to be traveling for about 24 hours in economy because the company was paying for my ticket, I didn't care. I was really looking forward to being on a 16-hour flight with like a changeover. Like it sounds insane to me now that I was excited for that back then. Um, But it was also really scary because I was moving to a new country and I was just so ready to make a change in my life. I didn't even like google the weather I, I moved to qatar first in the middle east i didn't even google the weather and i got there in march and it was actually really cold and i could not believe that it was cold and i had one jumper that i brought with me from trinidad that i'd used on the airplane and that that lasted me through <laughs> so um i was yeah it was it was a scary but exciting experience okay. Right, so I have to ask you, when when you first line, you saw this was the sun out? Yes, it was it was the morning. <laughs> Were you surprised at how cool the air was? Yeah, like um I we parked in a remote stand, so it wasn't like we had the connector to the terminal where we had to walk down this airplane stairs and be put in a bus. And I stepped, I literally stepped out of the airplane. I was like, oh, I'm cold. I, I could not understand what was going on because I, I was in the desert. So I I had no idea what was happening. So what would you say is like some of your biggest challenges moving and being in that new environment? So after the cold weather came the extreme heat, uh, the weather in the Middle East sometimes can get up to 50 degrees Celsius. So at the time when I first got to the Middle East, I was flying helicopters that did not have air conditioning. And honestly, it was like having a blow dryer in your face. vent. <laughs> Yeah, you'd 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 walk to the helicopter and a short walk to the helicopter, you'd be sweating. And you would sit in the helicopter and fly, do your flight, and you would dry off, but you'd be so crispy after when you land. Like a jump out that pack of cricks. Exactly. And then you draw, you land again and you just get sweaty and it was and, <laughs> and you know, learning to like hydrate was was a learning experience. Did anything like remind you of home? Um the only thing I would say reminded me of home is um I guess some food um like you know the, the, they have like a lot of uh the, what i love about the middle east is that there are so many cultures that live within the middle eastern area so um you would have a lot of um like indian food like gulab jamun and jalebi and curries and that sort of thing and of course they celebrate eat like we do back home as well but besides that, um, nothing, yeah, nothing really. And also getting back to your, your question before, uh, what was the biggest challenge? It was actually one of the things for me was um, getting used to working with different nationalities and their accents, like understanding their accents. Um, it, 
that I just had to deal with Trinis and some um, some people from South America. So I, I picked up that. But when you have to deal with Australian, New Zealand, Indian, you know, American, it's it, it took a while for the, for me to like tune my ears to to understand them. And did you have to tune your speech as well for them to be able to understand you? Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> one, one day, um, a Pakistani. He was a he was an operations officer. I was asking him a question. He was like, he was like, Safia, you need to tell me that again because you have a very sing song voice. And I was like, the irony of you telling me I have a sing song voice. So when I'm speaking to different nationalities, I have like a fairly neutral accent. Some people will say it sounds American. Some people will say it sounds English. Um, some people are surprised that I speak English so well, apparently. And then, of course, when you're talking to air traffic control, they have to understand what you're saying, right? Like it's very important for safety and for the person sitting next to me understand what I'm saying. So my voice is, I do change it in circumstance. Like when I, as soon as I, I land in Trinidad, my accent goes straight back to Trini. So it takes back immediately. Exactly. But- younger people now who may be at that age 26 27 28 who consider okay i have this dream but i'm not really sure how it is i want to pursue it i want to move out it may require me to move to another country they may be really really scared or maybe even frightened to make that leap into a new into that new part of their life so what advice would you really give to like especially girls in terms of like following your career path where you know they're stepping out getting a new apartment getting a new job even though it might be a a bit scary to really take that step forward yeah and it is scary like even as you're saying like getting a new apartment i would say if like it's kind of difficult especially if you're doing it on your own like i did it on my own let's say Mm -hmm. take little steps right like go to a restaurant by yourself go to the movies by yourself take a long drive by yourself and learn to become learn to trust your instincts if say you want to make a big move like moving to another country research it there social media is is you know i have a love-hate relationship with social media i I find it quite destructive but the good things about social media is that like on facebook say you're moving to timbuktu there is bound to be a page called expats in timbuktu where you can write ask questions and get as much information about what you're going to do. The biggest thing I would say is that if it makes you excited, and I, I always tell people, if it makes you excited, you really, really, really should do everything you can to go for that dream. Go do the thing that you want to do. And don't let fear hold you back. Like if I had let fear hold me back, I would have done nothing with my life. Yes. Yeah, so with that being said, now I need to ask you, when you got your Canadian commercial fixed wing license, did you get that feeling of this is my golden ticket? This is the start of my career? So I always wanted to be a helicopter pilot because I grew up seeing the helicopters um, looking for marijuana, unfortunately, where I live. And I remember going on a school holiday and we went to the airport and there was a Black Hawk helicopter there. So helicopters were my, they were in my heart, like not airplanes, but airplanes were were cheaper to fly at the time. They're all fly um and what the first time i flew in an airplane i did it in trinidad and that was kind of the okay well this is my first step into aviation and i continued on to canada to get my airplane fixed wing license but on like when i finished the license i didn't feel excited to get into the airlines like 
knew there was something else to me. In fact, there was an airplane called a Zling in, in Canada and it had a stick instead of a yoke, um, a stick, just like a helicopter. And I actually went into it to fly it just because, like, um, so I doubt in Canada, it was, it was definitely a, a changeover crossover point for me. How many countries would you say that you have visited thus far? Oh gosh. Um, I think it's about 60 right now. You have any, any ones that you really, really want to go to that you haven't reached as yet? Um, I really want to go to Antarctica and Ecuador and Chile and Greenland. And uh, I want to go to Iraqi Kurdistan and Socotra. Uh, yeah, there's like a whole list. Yeah, I want to see the whole world, to be fair. <laughs> so I have a question regarding something a little bit more on the danger side of things. Yeah, yeah. When you experienced the failure of the component on yeah. the aircraft that you were piloting before it took off, you said if you if the plane had took off about 60 seconds after, you were with a deployment of crash. How was that experience even going through that knowing... Okay, if we did only take off, that would have been it. How did that impact you? Okay, so, yeah, it was in a helicopter and... um. I was, I don't want, I actually went to work that they kind of pissed off. I was angry about something at work, but I had really early on in my career, it was like, and somebody told me this, they were like, never fly angry. So I think as a pilot, you have to compartmentalize your emotions. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go fly now. I'm going to get, you know, get my job done. And then I will deal with whatever after. So we had um, we had started the, aircraft, the helicopter. We loaded our passengers. We were literally reading through the checklist, taxi, um, and then take off. And it was it would, it would have taken about a minute. And when it happened, we didn't know what was happening. We heard a loud explosion and we saw things flying past the cockpit. Still no idea. But you don't have time to be scared or. Um, upset or any, when things happen in the cockpit or when things happen to your aircraft, your priority and it's drilled into you, uh, as you know, from day one is to fly the aircraft and we weren't flying, but I had, we had to secure the aircraft as much as we could. So the first thing to do was shut the aircraft down. So I reached across and I switched both engines off. The other pilot dealt with the rotor and, and that kind of thing. And we, there was nothing else we could do but stay inside because there was so much debris around us. And that's how we dealt with it. That's, that's, that was the initial dealing. So you had to just wait and for them to deal with the explosion and take care of the fire. What was going through your mind during that process while I was waiting? Were you frightened for any of the crew, any of the, the passengers on the plane? Did you, did you have any communication with what was going on? Oh, so we had no communication. Um, it was my pilot and the passengers. And what we what we did, so... We waited for the rotors to stop turning because you don't, and we didn't know what was happening, right? So you don't want to escape. While we were inside, we were safe. We were alive. There was no fire coming through. We didn't even know it was on fire. Um, so we stayed inside until the debris stopped, uh, till it all came, you know, onto the ground. And because if we had escaped, it would have hit us. We stayed inside the helicopter, and um, when the rotors stopped turning. Thankfully, by the grace of God, we were right in front of the maintenance hangar. So the, the, our engineers saw what was happening. So they actually came out while we were inside the helicopter and they fought the fire. And when it was safe, they let our passengers out. And it's only when I opened my door 
and I walked to the other side of the helicopter, I saw what was happening. And it's only then, like, still don't have, I, I didn't have an emotional reaction. I just had like, wow, okay, that happened. I couldn't believe it. I was in disbelief. And because you're taught to not, you can't start, you, you can't start crying in the middle of an emergency, right? Like that's just, you can't do it because you will, you will be of no help to anybody. It actually took a- Captain like, start crying, things bad. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it took a few days to process what had actually happened. And mm-hmm. because the mentality, I can't speak for the, you know, the, the airline side, but for helicopters, the mentality is you have to man up and get on with it. So the first thing to do was you have to, you have to get back in the cockpit. There's no counseling. Um, nobody offers you any sort of, um, counseling situation. You know, a lot of pilots came over to, to my crew house the next day to offer support, but there's no professional counseling even offered. So um, do you think that that is something that should be offered? Well, absolutely. Cause you have to acknowledge that you almost died. Um, and you have to, you should be given some professional counseling because it took me a long time to be able to sleep through the night. Like it's very, it was really traumatic. It was a really traumatic experience. And then the next time I flew in a helicopter, I, I was like any little vibration, any sound I was ready. Like I was on a, I was just operating on a heightened sense of, of response. If it is that the aircraft does go down in the field, how is it recovered? So I used to, well, I am a maintenance test pilot as well. So if an aircraft goes on the field, you basically fly another helicopter to it. Um, You take engineers with you and support staff and they will, if they can fix it in the field, it's done or they fix it enough or people like me, like the maintenance test pilots, to fly it back to base where it can be fixed properly. Um, if it can't be fixed, um, it's either another helicopter will come and sling it <laughs> and, and take it somewhere, or it's put on a truck or or that. Yeah, that's how they recover it. Test pilot on the AW139 helicopter, right? Yeah. And, and an examiner, examiner as well, yeah. Okay. Was that scary? Because here and you're doing test flights, you automatically think, well, okay. If something goes wrong, I am the person to like identify faults in the machine and report it back to, you know, the engineers. But was it scary being in the helicopter, piloting it, knowing that, you know, is a test flight? Yeah, I mean, it is. It, um, because you're the first person when it comes out of maintenance to fly it. So mm-hmm. what it means is that you have to have a more in-depth knowledge of the aircraft. Um, you can't just know, well, if this happens... BCDE is my is next steps I must take. You have to kind of know why it's happened and if there might be a follow-on reaction to what is happening. Um, and yeah, if you're not, ha- you know, it, it, there's a lot of, sometimes there's a lot of fight between pilots and engineers, but you just have to stand your ground if you're not happy with something. And so you have been like to all, all different parts of the world, okay? Yeah. Right. So I read that you have been, and this is actually something I really wanted to do as well. It's kind of something on my bucket list. How was, how was skydiving in Australia? <laughs> okay, so um, my husband, he, he was my boyfriend at the time. He, he uh, is a skydiver and he had gone to Australia to do um, a course. And I lived in mm-hmm. Qatar at the time. I was like, okay, well, I'll come meet you. So um, that was like another like 17 hour flight. So when I actually got to Australia, I was really jet lagged and I wanted to go skydiving. So he arranged for me to go skydiving and 
when mm-hmm. when I was in the aircraft and I was going, no, we were flying to altitude. He was like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah," because I was just sitting there, kind of like staring into space because I was so tired, right? Like he expected me to be scared, or I was just sitting there going, "This is nice." Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> And even like when it was my turn, because we sat on the edge of the airplane and with your feet dangling out, you know, like I was just kind of like in like a zone by myself going, oh, this is so pretty. Oh my God. <laughs> this is cool. Yeah. I'm just dangling out of the side of a helicopter. This is cool. <laughs> exactly. So it was just, to me, it was just like, all right, here we go. Um, and I was like, oh, look, this view is so pretty. And that was my, that was my first experience because I had... Uh, it was a tandem. So I had an instructor, obviously he knew what he was doing. I was like, whatever you do your thing. I'm just going to enjoy the view. And then I was like, well, I want to, I want to do like solo skydiving, like, like my husband does. So I was, um, I went and I did a few, um, drops, a few, um, dives, skydiving. So I did the first two and to get into a stable position when you're free falling, like before the parachute has been deployed. It's called the banana. Right. And for some reason, my body just does not do the banana very well. <laughs> like, it was just like, this hurts my back. So, And then my third solo skydive, the instructor. So obviously, you know, you're falling through the air. You have to trust the person you're, who's instructing you. So she would be right in front of me. She wasn't attached to me anymore, but she would be right in front of me, right? And I was jumping out of the airplane with her. But she had to go and do something and she passed me off to somebody else. I didn't know that person and I, I wasn't comfortable with them. And I hesitated when, you, when I jumped from the airplane. And it was like the worst thing you could do because I was not in the position that I should have been to get into the banana. I kind of tumbled out the airplane, which is really bad. Um, and I eventually, you know, got into the position where I could pull my chute and that ruined it for me. Like that was the last time I skydived. Um, and I really resented my instructor for doing that to me, but you know, it's probably a good thing. You tumble out of a helicopter while skydiving? Of an airplane. How does one even process thoughts on the way down? You don't. To get into the banana. You don't. You just kind of go, it's just kind of like, oh dear, oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) Banana or die. Banana or die. Yeah, yeah. Banana. Exactly. Together, together. Yeah, exactly. While solo skydiving, do you have a backup parachute or is there only one attached to you? So if you get to a certain altitude and you, let's say I was still tumbling and I reach a thousand feet, right? The parachute right. automatically deploy. And there is a backup parachute just because there's so much that can go wrong when you're, when you're doing it by yourself. I mean, you're learning, you can have tangled lines and so you can cut away your main chute and there is a backup parachute. Because I heard about like some people passing out, just off the chest. Or were you accustomed already with being at that attitude where it was just, it was really scary and you had to focus any moment to get into the banana position. You feel any kind of consciousness slipping away at all? No, no, no. There was no like okay. loss of consciousness. You like when you're in free fall, you're hearing the air rush you know, past your ears and, but you're like on the highway. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you're concentrating on the drills that you learned on the ground. Um, and, and, you know, you, you have to give like thumbs up and you have to pretend you're reaching to, to pull your shoe to, to make sure that your instructor is happy to with what you're doing or what they're teaching you. So you're not really actually, you don't have time to look around or do anything. You're actually just concentrating on drills at that point. Also, it's not like a free fall and then you just, hey, look at, there's the twin towers across there. 
No, 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 you have to like, yeah, like, especially when you're just started learning, you have to like, keep an eye on your altitude. You have, a, you have, it's like a watch. So you just, you know, you keep looking at it you, and you have a certain altitude. You have to pull your shoot and, um, you have a little bit of time to go, okay, well, I'm really afraid everything looks very small right now. Um, but yeah, most of the time when you're just starting to learn, um, as, as in, in, uh, opposition to like when I did it in Australia where I didn't have to worry about anything. I was just there like enjoying the view when you're doing it by yourself you're responsible right like you're responsible for your own life so there's a lot more going on with your time in the Republic of Congo I believe it's in the Mount Nisdine it's in the um, yeah so we climbed to Mount Niragongo Niragongo thank you for that pronunciation yeah. <laughs> sleeping on the side of a cliff the toilet with the view I went back and watched the vlog that you did oh my god it was really nice oh, thank you you're welcome so how about what was that experience like and are the Congo gorillas scary <laughs> they're extremely scary um <laughs> so to get to uh, democratic republic of congo um i actually flew into rwanda and spent a few days there and um visited the genocide museum there because obviously there was a genocide many years ago um and i would recommend anybody who's ever who who decides to go to rwanda to visit it because it is a very stark reminder of how people can be turned against each other. Like neighbors were killing neighbors. You know what I mean? Anyway, after Rwanda, we had a driver take us over the border to the Congo. And it's almost like a different world. Like Rwanda is green and lush. And, um, and then you, you cross the border into the Congo and it's, it's chaos. Like it's a lot of chaos. And because the security, the security situation there is, um, constantly in flux we had to go with a reputable company so we went with the virunga national park and they provide uh-huh. arms protection for us so we had a vehicle in front of us a vehicle behind us and our rangers with us in our vehicle that were all armed my husband is ex-irish army and so he he could see that like they actually knew what they were doing like how they held the weapons and how they how they you know did their convoy or whatever he was really impressed with how how they were acting and what was amazing as well the fact that there were women rangers like i was really happy to see that when we were there we did the uh mount niragongo trek and that was honestly one of the most amazing amazing things i've ever seen in my life um you it's like you know, a really strenuous trek. And then you get to the top of this volcano and you can like look inside it and see the earth bubbling, you know? And um, it's the world's largest lava lake. It's the size of two Uh football fields. And it doesn't look like that because you're so high up and you're looking down into it. And and you're hearing, like we slept on the side of the cliff because that's like the only place you could put up a structure to sleep in. Um, and you're hearing like gas explosions all night long, you know, like was just, I couldn't believe I was looking into the earth. Just dangling from the side of a cliff with glass explosions going on behind you from a volcano. How, how, did, how do you sleep through, through that? I'd just be up like, okay, this is what we do now. No bed underneath, man. You know, you know, we, we cool. We chill. <laughs> yeah, I was like, 
whatever. I'm tired. I'm going to sleep. So. <laughs> um, yeah. And then of course, like, you know, cause you're on the edge of a cliff and even though you have a headlamp, the toilet, they had put it like down the cliff. So you have to like walk to use the bathroom. But um, it's like one of the best views in the world. Cause you're actually looking into the crater of another volcano and you're looking into the, the DRC. So yeah, it's one one of the best views I've ever had <laughs> using the toilet, but I did not go to the toilet that night. I whatever I had to do, that that was that held in till the morning when there was like proper sunlight. I, never clip, I, I just have to be every fifteen minutes. Yes. I not even leaving or <laughs> decide of a cliff to go with a headlight on. Exactly. Jesus. Yeah, and then um, the gorilla. So yeah, we went to see the, the silverback gorillas, which are an endangered species. And the you know we went again with with the rangers, and you know like this is I mean I grew up in thick forest like i've never seen forest like this before like it's just it's suffocating there's nowhere to move when you're inside so the, the rangers had to cut the vines and stuff for us and then you'll just you'll just walk into a, park, a clearing and there'll be this family and they're huge right like the, the mama gorilla was very like she was she had a little baby and she was very protective of baby yeah there was at least like five or six of them and there was like a little toddler and he was honestly he was like and he wanted attention so he was swinging from the vans and doing tricks and yeah he was very entertaining and then his daddy showed up and we were there for like two hours right like which was very lucky because sometimes you don't even get like 15 minutes with them we got two hours with them and then daddy showed up and daddy made a noise which indicated that we should leave because he was not happy <laughs> So it was Ooh, that's immediately my next question. I was like, you was with the toddler and no gorillas actor? Yeah, exactly. Well, the toddler was doing his own thing. Right? The toddler, toddler left mommy and mm-hmm. was just like swinging and jumping and, and in between everybody. You don't touch them. You and uh, you have to wear a mask on your face because you don't want right. any human diseases to be passed on to the, to the you know the gorillas. And okay, the toilet with the view. How is that experience? Because I was like, I don't, if I use that, if I use that toilet, I don't think I'd leave with that type of view. <laughs> well, it's still a hole in the ground, yeah? It's not a toilet that flushes. So you go, you do your thing, you hold your breath, and you leave. Like. <laughs> okay, okay. So now I need to actually snorkeling in Sofia between tech tonic plates mind-blowing in of itself to even say out loud yeah how was the experience so i um i was was never really comfortable in water because i learned to swim in my 20s right i didn't grow up in a that had a swimming pool where we got lessons or any of that kind of stuff so i learned to swim really late in life and my husband he was diving so he wasn't with me to like hold my hand or anything so when i was have to wear a dry suit and it covers your head it covers everything um you're wearing goggles and the only thing that that is exposed are are your cheeks and a little bit of your forehead and like when i was stepping into the water i was really just kind of like oh gosh this is like kind of scary it's so cold um, do I really want to do this? I could just leave. And I always have these thoughts, even when I'm hiking, like the first 20 minutes into a hike, I'm like, what am I doing? This is very hard. Like, I hate this. But like, I always push past it. I push in the water. And when the, <laughs> when the water hits your face, it's just like no experience. It's like a thousand needles, right? But it's so cold that it numbs it almost immediately. Um, uh, yeah, like it, the water is so pure that it doesn't actually sustain any life. 
So the 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 ridge that is between the plates is just the water is so clear because there's no fish, there's no life, there's no plants, there's nothing. But the, you the you see like reflections in the water and the clarity is just unreal. Um, but it was actually so cold when I got out. Is the opposite of Marcus water? <laughs> well, I'm not saying anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> Um, when I got out of the water, a little piece of my hair had escaped from the dry suit and I was just like playing with my hair and my hair broke off in my hand. So that's how cold it was. It it freezes here in, oh my goodness. And it snapped. Did you get to dive down? Because I was seeing they did like some fun flips where you could dive down into the ridge and just dive like a couple of feet and just see like all the rocks and everything or the the buoyancy of the wetsuit. Spring you right back up. Yeah, I wasn't going to try any of that. Um, I stayed next to the guide and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to snorkel. My husband, he'd actually dived with a proper tank and everything. I was like, I'm just going to do the surface and that is it. <laughs> so, so there is the option there where you, could snor- where you could snorkel with the tank and everything and go down. Yeah, yeah, there's an option to do like a proper dive. Oh, perfect. That'd be cool. I would like to go there and um, snorkel with the tank to go down. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really ex- cool, yeah. Okay, and how was it flying past the Burj Arab, if I pronounce it correctly? So, um, the Burj Khalifa is the tallest one in the world um, that's in Dubai. So there's nowhere to land on the Burj Khalifa. You can land near it, but there's no helipad on the Burj Khalifa. But I've landed on the Burj Al Arab. That's the one that looks like the sail. Um that was like, you know, you fly past it a hundred times, you know, like you, you just get used to it. But I did... I- very few pilots who actually got to land on the Burj Al Arab. And I had the queen of a country in the back that I was landing with. But that was a really, really cool experience. Because when I was in Trinidad, I used to watch documentaries of it being built, right? And I told myself I really wanted to see it um, in real life one day. And that was just like a full circle moment. Because um, I had taken my mom, when she came to visit me in UAE, I had taken her for afternoon tea inside the restaurant but i had never been i hadn't landed yet on the top so when i landed it was just like yeah. this is pretty cool in comparison to flying the past was as the building get closer did you be like oh this is this is really really big like a lot bigger than just flying past that you see it was it any different um no because when we fly past it we fly pretty pretty close so I, and i've landed i had landed um, on buildings before so the building itself didn't intimidate uh, me when you're landing you're just kind of going just you're thinking about you're not thinking about how big the building is you're thinking about what can i do if i have a problem where can i fly away to you're thinking about where is the wind coming from the turbulence um and and the exact landing area you're not really like you don't really care about the actual building but when i was there i was like that's pretty cool like it was high up and you know i could see um what i had seen on tv before i was actually there so it was like a full circle moment. They're like, I remember looking at this and now look, I'm flying right next exactly, to Exactly, yeah. Is it possible to ask how it was meeting Prince Charles? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. You want to talk about that now? Yeah, if I, if yeah, I may. Um, so um, there's a certain client that I flew. Um, he was a certain shake. He, he, he is a lovely person. Like if you fly with him, you're his pilot. He will always make sure you have somewhere to rest or he will bring you into the function that he's going to... Um, and you always make sure you have food and somewhere to like just chill or wait for him. That day there was a huge function in one of the other Emirates and he's like, you know, you can come in. So I, I went into the, to the, to the function and I was standing on the aisle and at the end of the function, 
Prince Charles was walking past with the president of the country, who's he was my who was my boss, right? Like um, Prince Charles looks over to me and he's like, Oh, myself and another pilot were there in uniform. He was like, Oh, it look it's the helicopter pilots. Because both both of his kids are helicopter pilots, uh, Prince William and Prince Harry. So for a second, I was like, oh, should I do it? Should I do it? So like, I just stuck my hand out, you know, to shake his hand. And he was nice enough to come over and shake my hand. I didn't look like a fool just standing there with my hand extended. So it was really nice. Right. You shake hands at Prince Charles? Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> okay, so now I have to ask, because this one, one kind of near near to my heart, because I love the movie that he- was it meeting Robert De Niro? Okay. So the same client, the same client who brought me in and I, where I met, the same shake, like you get a call, like every so often you get a call going, come to the palace and I wanted to meet somebody. So we go to the palace and um, yeah, like there's Robert De Niro and he was married at the time and his his lovely wife. Um, yeah, and you just like sat around having lunch with Robert De Niro. It's, it's so yeah, It wasn't just like a meet so, and shake like you sit down and have lunch. Yeah, it's like a huge like production and he, we sat at the same table he was at and yeah, you just... It's surreal. Like in the moment, you're like, you're not going. Oh my god! Oh my god! You just got- I will have to hold myself back so much from starting to quote his know, movies. Right? If I'm on this, oh my goodness, that's so yeah. cool. And by the way, thank you for bringing up that you were you are Trinidadian when Russell Peters called oh, you up <laughs> off of my chair. Like yes, Trinidad in the building. Identify we, we from Trinidad. Exactly. I, I, and then he goes, "Have you looked in the mirror? Are you sure Indian?" No, <laughs> stop. <laughs> I, I was laughing the entire time. I saw your face and I was like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, it was." Um, I will never sit in the front row of a comedy show ever again. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I was a cadet for a couple years, and I still have friends and colleagues and contacts who keep in the air force and keep with the service and maybe going through like situations and that kind of thing. And I know it's something that you and I would have dealt with yeah. while it is you were in Trinidad and working. And the question I had to ask you really to try and help these kids is what challenges did you have to face being both female and West Indian in a mostly male-dominated industry? And what advice you could give to younger girls who may be experiencing similar situations? Right. So a lot of people think that when I talk about discrimination, that it actually uh, it happens in the Middle East. But it is, in fact, the reason why I left Trinidad to move to the Middle East. And it didn't stop in the Middle East. Um, But what was really surprising in my experience was that most of the discrimination I faced, it it came from, uh, obviously, you know, because the industry is mostly made of men. It was mostly men, but it was Western men. Arabs were welcoming. Like, of course, you'd have one or two who have a problem, but they were mostly welcoming and me being a dark skinned woman to some people it offended some people that i i like why how did i get into the industry how did i get to where i am uh, it was like a double whammy for me you know from my own experience the only thing what i i, I accepted it for too long i didn't do the things i'm about to tell you you should do so what you should do is document your experiences don't take phone calls like if you go to complain about it don't do it via a phone call do it via email and all if you if if your manager calls you instead of uh, instead of responding to the email you write back after the phone call you go in you know as as per our conversation blah 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 always keep a paper trail 
Um, and you know, you always cover your backside always because if it gets to a point where you have to go to court or you have to take it to a higher supervisor, you need to be sure that you are showing that you're documenting and it's not going anywhere. Yeah, is that he see, he see. Exactly. And the thing is, I have proof of what it is I'm talking about. And stand up for yourself. Like, if, like, you know, when something doesn't feel right, like, you know, when somebody is being a bully. And sometimes you think, well, you know, they have the right to act like that because they're senior to me. And no, 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 no. Yeah, they have the rank. Exactly. They don't. They don't have the right to treat you like on, on anything less than a professional. You know, and if they have a problem with you, they have a process in which to complain about you as well. All companies have it. Stand up. Yeah. And just stand up for yourself. And if it's not being taken seriously, if it's getting really bad and it's not being taken seriously, escalate it. Always escalate it. There's a lot of fear in aviation, especially in Trinidad, that when you make a fuss, like if you if you start complaining that you'll be blacklisted. And a lot of times you are blacklisted. But it's either you put up with it. Or you're blacklisted. There's no like real in between there, you know? So you have to make a decision. And it's a way for some certain companies to um to just cover it up. Because the person who is doing the bullying and the person who is doing who is being discriminatory, they are more important and they don't want to piss them off. So you are the, the pleb. At the time I was, you know, a co-pilot. Um, and I was dispensable. So yeah, it's it's all about documenting your experiences and and going through the right to read your HR handbook. And always remember that HR is not on your side. HR doesn't work for you. HR doesn't is not paid by you. HR is paid by the company. So you have to do things by the book, or else they're gonna you know they will th- their side is usually on the company as well. So. You have a lot of things working against you, but do things properly when you're documenting and complaining about your situation. How do you think the aviation industry in particular could be made a little bit female-friendly for girls who now enter in the industry? Okay, so the thing about aviation is that a brown pilot, a black pilot, uh, a girl pilot, a boy pilot, you're still a pilot, right? Pilots are just right. pilots. There shouldn't be any um, distinguish any any difference because I do the same job as my male as a person sitting next to me who's a man and he does the same job as me and we should all be viewed as equals now the only wow. thing you should be judged on is your performance like if you're just not performing that that should be an issue it shouldn't be oh well I know she's gonna do bad because it's a woman you know and when I first got into this industry when I was doing my interviews like I was a baby pilot I was told that one company had a problem with me because I was a female and they had, they, they were wondering how I was going to act when I had my period. Like that's the kind of nonsense what? we had to deal with. Right. They had, a, they, they were going, well, she's going to have mood swings when she's, when she's on her period. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Like I believe you really had to endure that in yeah. this day and age. Yeah. Uh, um, but and on the other side, women coming into the industry, and this does not happen often, but I have seen it happen. It's very few and far between. They're coming into the industry and they think, well, I'm a lady and I need to be treated differently. That should never be a mindset. I've always said, I'm not a female pilot. I'm a pilot. And, and that should be your mindset. You're going there to do the same job and you should be judged the same way. That is where it we hit um, we hit a wall because we're not judged the same way. We're always expected to do twice the amount of work, be given half the recognition. Now, you, you experienced the locker incident why do you work in Trinidad, right? Yeah. And especially in that type of situation where it is that 
it moved past. Now you have witnesses. Yeah. People who see in this incident, who see in this type of bullying going forward. Yeah. Where somebody might be thinking, okay, if it's a people who see in this, my locker just being kicked in, what an email could really do. Yeah. People might be thinking that same thing. How would you even deal with that type of situation given the knowledge that you have now? Right. So, so I'll explain what the locker incident is for the audience. So the locker incident is a senior pilot. I had reported him for bullying and he decided to kick my locker in at work um, in front of people. And the only reason I knew it was it was him is because the people who saw him told me. Now, I would have written an email. I would have contacted a lawyer. And if he wasn't fired, I would have taken him to court. Because I should never have been made to feel unsafe. I, somebody like that should never be allowed to work. Back then, we were all scared of him. It wasn't just me. It was the people he was, he, who he did it in front of. And he did it in front of them because he knew they wouldn't do anything because they were all scared of him. And I wasn't the only person that he bullied. He bullied many people. Um, and I know for a fact he still works there. And there were people before me and people after me who have experienced the same level of um, abuse. Yeah, I think it's important for people to know how to fight that level of abuse because you shouldn't be having to go through that because somebody have a rank over you. Yeah, exactly. I would have, you know, if I would have taken my own advice I've just given, I would have documented it, gone to my superiors. If they chose to do nothing about it, uh, I would have gone to a lawyer mm-hmm. and dealt with it that way. That's the people who have a rank over you, but now it's have, I know girls as well, who dealing with, it may not be with somebody who have a rank. They may be studying, okay, auntie and auntie have a particular way that they know how to do yeah. things they have particular views and traditions and stuff that they keep and they expect me to follow it but my view on the world and the things that i want to pursue may not be indirectly in line with what it is that they're trying to bring towards me you know i acknowledge where i come from and i appreciate the tradition but you know i want to follow my own path could you speak a little bit on even breaking away from certain traditional type thinking and moving on to you know i really need to follow what it is that has set my heart on So the word stubborn has a lot of negative connotations with it, but I'm, I I consider myself quite stubborn, but that's, it's not a bad thing. I just know that we have a life that we're gifted with it and I can spend the better part or most of it trying to please other people who I'm just given an example. I'll give you an example as a wedding. Say you spend thousand dollars on a wedding well somebody somebody will complain about the food somebody will complain about the drinks somebody will complain about the dress about the decorations you cannot please everybody if you were happy with the wedding and it's your wedding and you were happy and you enjoyed yourself that is the only thing that matters there will always it doesn't matter if you try to please people they will always have something negative to say you have to sometimes and 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 it's considered selfish in society it's considered selfish to forge your own path. All I can say, the only advice I can give is to be kind and respectful in dealing with, especially with family members, if you are going to reject their version for your future. Because remember, it might be that they were only given that version. It's the only path that they know because they were not given other opportunities or they they can't see past what they want for your future. So to be kind and you know, do do as much explaining as you can. And if they, they still, you know, decide to, to you know, kick you out of the family or whatever, do you have to ask yourself, well, you know, am I still happy doing it? Am I still happy pursuing my dream? And just know that making yourself happy, doing things for you, it's not selfish. 
um, it's kind of, I think it's kind of what put on to follow A, B, C, D, E, right? You put on earth to go, no, maybe I can, I can do something else with my life. Maybe I can, no, I love painting. Maybe I can be a painter, you know, like. I don't have to be a doctor or exactly. a lawyer. Or... It's perfectly fine if that's what you want to do. But if you don't and you're doing it to, to, to please mommy and daddy, you're not Every time you go to work, you're going to be upset. Every time you come back after a long, hard, hard day. And this is something I tell people as well, right? Like there's this saying and it goes like, um, do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That's not true. I've hated days that I've worked, you know, because they've been long. I've been hungry. Um, the company was treating me badly. But do I love flying? Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't do anything else. But imagine not liking what you're doing and having to deal with all the other bits, the politics, the, the pay, cotton pay, some a coworker you don't like. Imagine not liking your job and having to deal with that. What would you prefer? You know, you prefer having a little bit of joy in the things that you do and having to deal with the bad things as well or just being unhappy all the time? Eat better and live longer. I'll take the teaspoon of joy. Exactly. Exactly. Safia, we have blown through all of the questions that I have for you. Most of them, okay, really. Cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? Anything you wanted to add? Any message that you want to send on to your fans? Um, I just want to say, um, like, you know, you probably see it like, you know, like a quote, like, follow your dreams, you know, do follow your dreams. But I think what people don't, understand is that when you're following your dreams you have to actually like take a step forward and and action it as well even if it's like a small action every day you take to follow your dream um you can't just daydream about your dream you have to actually make little steps and those little steps will eventually grow into big steps um i read a book recently it's called atomic habits by james clare and I actually do a lot of the things he recommends, but I would recommend it to anybody who wants to have, you know, wants to take that first step forward in whatever you want to do, whether it's like looking for a new job or exercising or whatever. It's just, it's, it's, it's about action as well. And I just, yeah, I just hope that like happiness and being happy is something that people take into consideration when they're choosing, a career or, you know, a path in life. Like it really does boil down to your, if you're, if you're going to be happy. I must say that I totally agree with you because a couple of weeks ago when I took up the, I believe it was the express yeah. and read the article that you were in. Yeah. I was initially so nervous to even DM you. I mean, like, you know, would you be interested in appearing on the podcast? Because I know time difference and you're flying plenty. And I was even going back to like my fam, like my mom. And I was like, mom, on a message, just listen to find out if they'll be open to going on the podcast. You know, the podcast is something that I really trying to, you know, develop. Yeah. So like even taking that little step to send you a message, she'd be like, <laughs> hi, you know, we have this and we have a small, we have a very small following. You know, even that little step and just to get back down, when you report and said yes you'd be interested i immediately as like a message i was like you would not believe who <laughs> oh just responded <laughs> if you have a dream and you want to follow it you had to take a small step towards following it every single day i completely yeah. agree <laughs> Sophia, i am so thankful for you taking the time out of your day to appear on this platform and thank you so much for inviting me it was a lot of fun um i i loved all your questions and i wish you luck like i hope to see your podcast you know all over and best of luck on the next flight. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll talk soon. South Central.